This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. We've got an open mic show today for show number 570-something. I think it's 71, maybe 72. But uh, looking forward to a great conversation with the Restoration Industries Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli. We've got Ed Light from down in the D.C. area, John Lapoterre out of Orlando, Florida. We've got Ken Larson out of Destin, Florida. And we've got Jay Stake hopefully coming in. And I want to pull Don Weeks in to bring the Canadian perspective in. Before we get started, let's thank our platinum sponsor. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, Siri. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association. Okay, no Z-Man today, so I'm going to handle the uh, micro the micro band. Wow, we're going way back there. The uh, trivia question for today, the ideas trivia question. I'm going to make it real simple. I, I, I'd like you to know, let us know the country of origin, not where they live now, the country of origin of the first, of the editors of the first green book, Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of Indoor Mold. I think I know the correct answer, but uh, we'll find out in just a minute. All right, so we're going to have an open mic show today. Looking forward to talking to our group of uh, distinguished guests, and uh, I think I'm going to throw out the first topic here. And I, and I want to start with the hurricane recovery and get a little update from our Florida listen, our Florida guest today on hurricane recovery. I want to start with uh, Mr. Ken Larson. Ken, what's going on uh, after the, the tremendous issues you've had down there over the last few years? How are things coming back? Um, what kind of things did we learn from the uh, you know the, the the big storms that hit Florida? Yeah. Um, just, first of all, I just want to make sure that everybody can hear me okay. Am I coming through good? A little, yeah, not bad. A little low. Okay. So, um, yeah, no, uh, Panama City Beach is uh, still under repair. Um, it's looking so much better than what it once did, but it's uh, still got a lot of work to go. Um, when you drive down the roads, you still see a lot of the, the forest and the trees are all snapped in half. They are starting to grow back. But it's still, you can tell it's a, a disaster zone. A lot of the um, uh, the houses that are being repaired there, they have been completed. But even to this day, I mean, I'm still getting phone calls from people who haven't had anything done in their homes yet. That's 15 months later, and it's still uh, got the original damage in it. Nobody's done anything in those homes. Wow. Um, and uh, so a lot of that is the result of either their claims were denied, so there's, they're going through the legal efforts to try and get that uh, claim approved, um, or they didn't have insurance, and so they just abandoned the house, uh, gave it back to the bank, or possibly um, uh, they're selling it for pennies on the dollar. I was just in a house uh, just last, oh, last month, 
Uh, it's about an $8 million house sold for just a couple million, but it, all the original damage is still in there. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, well, Ken, let me go back to that for just a minute. That That's very interesting. You, you'd think that someone that owns an $8 million home uh, would have the resources or the insurance to get it repaired and not to take a $6 million haircut. Can you Do you know a little more about the situation there? Well, yeah, in that particular case, there's all kinds of financial issues. He had bankruptcy before and, and some other things. Okay. Um, yeah, so there's usually there's a, a, a long story to every one of those situations, and yeah, it's, it's details that aren't really important. Bottom line is that there's still a lot of work to be done there, and uh, these are serious situations. The other thing that I've I got to tell you, this has really been interesting. I was talking to one of my cl- customers, and he's a therapist. And he said, it is unbelievable the amount of therapy that is uh, required uh, from the citizens. There, there's so many that are traumatically affected from this storm, especially the children. He said that's what he's really getting um, uh, busy with is uh, the children in schools that are uh, suffering from uh, mom and dad losing their job or, you know, being, you know, living in a tent for months. Uh, these kids uh, still have to go to school, and it's just a, a real challenge for them. Well, wow, that's something you don't really think about when you when you think about hurricanes and storm recovery. Is you know the mental uh, stress that people were put under. I, I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, I was talking to another one of my colleagues who actually stayed in one of the houses during the storm, and so you know we all kind of oh we're all sitting around shaking our head at the guy what were you thinking of i mean he would know better and so um the conversation eventually got to the point where we asked him when did you think or when did you realize you made a bad decision to stay in this house what did you see what did you hear and of course the storm is howling outside he said i realized i was in trouble when i looked out my living room window and saw a refrigerator going down my road at 80 miles an hour. He said, that's when I realized I had a problem. Wow. Interesting. Ken, how, I mean, the damage wasn't just limited to Panama City. There was, you know, widespread damage. How have the other areas fared? Are they all coming back pretty well now? Well, interesting you say that. Uh, So Mexico Beach uh, is a small community, uh, I'm guessing maybe Thirty or 40,000 people or so uh, right on the beach and it got absolutely obliterated I mean it was to the point where the houses, you don't even see the foundation it's gone, it's hmm. just gone and so those houses are slowly coming back and um, the houses that they're building there are nice and new and modern and they look great so that community when it's all finished is going to be uh, I think a, a real desirable location to go and visit but uh, there's still a lot of work going on there. Um, yeah, you know, there's other, uh, that, that's just so you know, Mexico Beach is east of uh, Panama City and about uh, possibly 15 miles, maybe 10 miles. And uh, that was, you know, the Hurricane Central right there. It mm-hmm. just hits so hard. Hey, let's get John Lapoteri in here. John, I noticed you, you said many have over a million-dollar deductible. That's just amazing. Uh, can you can you elaborate on that a bit? Sure. A lot of our clients that have you know massive homes and, and very large properties, um, and even if they're covered by some of the high-end insurance companies, 
their deductibles on a $10 million house could be $1 million, $2 million just to keep the, the insurance payments reasonable. So hmm. uh, even though you would think that these guys have the means to, to manage their loss, um, it's typically on a larger home, in my experience, all out of pocket. Wow. What kind of homeowner's insurance? You live in Orlando, John. I, I mean, what what's a typical Orlando, suburban, you know, $300,000, $400,000 home? What do, they, what do they pay for insurance in Florida? Well, that, that varies so greatly, even in, in Orlando. Um, many people live in a flood zone. You know, we're, we're relatively flat, so... I literally live across the street from someone who's not in a flood zone while I am. But the back of my house is a, a wilderness area. It's woods. But part of that woods is, is rather swampy. So it can range from a few thousand dollars to $10,000, depending on where you live and whether or not you're in a flood zone. And a and, lot of us in Florida are in flood zones. And the deductible can be pretty high as well. Ken, what about in your area of Florida? Does that kind of you know similar yeah absolutely and and john replied correctly it's a you know there's a wide variety of different rates depending on where you are so if you're in a really desirable tourist location there's going to be expensive houses on the beach high risk and lots of money to be spent so the the premiums are high it depends on where you are i mean you're talking three thousand just for insurance um that's a lot of money and then what about taxes on top of that? I mean, the taxes aren't as high, I guess, or? Yeah, there's certainly, you know, good tax, you know, property tax that we have to pay. Um, that's not really something I follow too much. I kind of okay. leave that to the wife, but, you know. <laughs> John, any thoughts on that, taxes? Yeah, it, just like anywhere else, if you, the closer you live to downtown Orlando or the theme parks, the higher your tax base. If you go where I live, my taxes are very low because it's I'm, I'm displaced from the rest of the hubbub where people want to live. I'm one of those few that would rather live away from that. So I have very low taxes, but I have a, a pretty healthy um, insurance policy because I also live where I'm in a floodplain and a lot of trees that could hit the house. Okay. I just The other thing I wanted to have both of you guys address before we move to another um another uh, another topic is what what lessons did we learn here uh with respect to both the inspection assessment and the remediation of some of these homes after after this uh event start with you ken yeah well thanks for asking that because that was something i i thought was a quite revealing is that there's a lot of contractors that came into town from out of town uh, to help out with the, the damages. And a lot of those companies, as with most hurricanes, a lot of those companies aren't very reputable and they don't do good work and they're out on the take. That's quite literally what they're doing. And uh, they uh, come into the job, they do substandard work, and they put in this big old fat uh, invoice with the expectation that they're going to get beat up down the road. Um, and so they end up taking, you know, 30, 40% of what they originally invoiced, and they accept that. And now the end result is that the entire uh, restoration community 
uh, gets a black eye from those practices because the insurance claims representatives, they think that everybody should be dropping their bill 60% because the last guy did it. So it's really you know bad that way. So the really good companies that are interested in uh, their reputation, they are surrounding themselves with experts. It is just, it's an as- astonishing development to see how the reputable companies are no longer trying to do this by themselves. They're bringing in consultants, IEPs, engineers, um, subject manager experts, uh, attorneys, public adjusters. They just, if you try and do this on your own, you're going to get beat up real bad. So they just, you know, bring in a whole bunch of people and the, the claim gets settled fairly. John, let's go to you and then I want to get Pete to jump in here. Yeah, I agree with Ken. I think it's very unfortunate in our state when we have natural disasters, there are, uh, has become a very clear division in the two different kinds of contractors. And that's the longstanding uh, contractor that works well with consultants, documents everything, and is working truly for the client to get them restored. And then there's the opportunistic guys that are waiting for a hurricane and, and want the massive loss so they can do as much work as they can. Um, They tend to work without consultants and IEPs. And if they are working with a consultant or an IEP, they're working together, meaning that they Mm. they pay each other. And they exaggerate the loss and they're prepared to negotiate. And it really, really gives Florida a, a bad reputation and it pits the insurance industry against the restoration industry. But but I will say, I, I agree with Ken, the good guys are getting much better. And it's easier to distinguish the good reputable companies based on their documentation and their willingness to work with good consultants and IEPs and independent adjusters. Interesting. Pete, let me let you jump in here. Any thoughts on this? I mean, you're the RIA, Restoration Industry Global Watchdog. What do you think? Well, Industry Global Watchdog, I don't want anyone to send a message I speak for RIA, but right. I mean, look, the, what – some of the stuff that Ken uh, and uh, John just talked about, quite frankly, I think would echo many of the members of RIA and IQA, the remediators, the assessors. You know, it's particularly in Florida, there's about 20,000 uh, guys that have to be licensed to do um, mold assessment and mold remediation that dates back over a decade when this whole thing kind of hit the radar uh, after... I don't know, the, after the second or the third uh, S520 and a lot of state activity happened. So I always talk about the big three, which is uh, Florida, Texas, and Louisiana. Those kind of lead the country. There are other states that have some laws in Maryland, New York, and a few others, but it's not the same as the big three. They're right in, uh, you know, humidity central, if you would. They're going to get hurricane and heavy tropical storms every year, whether they want them or not. So that 20,000, that, uh, those guys need 14 continuing education units every two years. And it has to be approved, these, uh, the, the vendors that supply that through the, what's called the DPR. That's the Department of Professional Regulation of Florida. And let me tell you, it's not easy to get that stuff approved through them. It's a tedious process. Um, they're, they're, they kind of, you know, pretty tough in the regulation. Uh, you know, it's not like... Uh, getting industry CECs and most of those are fairly easy you know as long as it's not promotional so they they do try to enforce that but uh, you know having said that John made the key point 
when he dovetailed off Ken, there's just a lot of cowboys down here. And it, it is a, you know, to quote what Cliffwood might say, you know, it, it is about the good and the bad and the good and the evil. You're going to have guys that are forthright and uh, want to do the right thing, whether it's in the team approach or however they're going to go about it. And then you just have the, the carpetbaggers that come from out of the area and even some of the local companies that uh, just um, want to kind of make deals with the devils. They want to create these fights with the TPAs and the insurance companies. And, uh, you know, it's not to say that the insurers and the TPAs are angels. I mean, we all know they're not. But but uh, it, it would seem that it, it would be better than the just the nasty way that it's been. And this has just accelerated over the last several years. Uh, it started in 2003 in 17 with Irma and Maria and all that and now culminated you know last year with Michael which is most of the discussion now because that's kind of the hot, the hot one on the table that, that Ken was talking about so um, you know like the final thing I'll say is we um, you know uh, John was involved and we did the show last July with Joe that we did I did the blog and that with the town hall that we did right after the AOB law was changed in Florida mm -hmm. and uh, we had opposing viewpoints with uh, with Harvey Cohen, with uh, David Popper, with Peter Prosa. Uh, it was uh, very well received. And, uh, you know, uh, one of your show sponsors, AML, hosted that, uh, you know, uh, with the Cohen Law Group. Now, what I'll say is I, I think it's time potentially to do another one of these town halls in 2020 and expand the group of, of the panel to bring in some of these other experts, the team approach, and get all the opposing viewpoints and um, and uh, because I think that Florida, Joe, will, it leads the way um, globally on this interaction between the insurance industry and the property restoration industry. I think the way it goes in Florida impacts the nation and, in, and impacts the globe. And don't think for a minute that that's an over-exaggeration because all these, you know, in the digital age we live in now, these insurance companies have global impact. The associations are starting to, you know, globally organize, and everybody looks at best practices. And it used to be Southern California, what I always called was the ground zero was the hot thing. Now it's 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 Florida, particularly South Florida in particular, particularly those counties, a lot of affluence down there, and there's a lot of the, the wild, the new Wild West of South Florida. So anyway, uh, you know the other thing, the other thing that Florida is kind of. I see it kind of leading the way on is this whole licensing issue. After Florida did it, you know, you got New York, they've done it now, and you've got D.C., and you've got uh, other states talking about it, New Jersey, New Hampshire has a little something. So I don't think it's just the insurance area either. But let me ask this um, to Ken and or John jump in here. Was there any enforcement of the licensing law after the hurricane that you're aware of? Have you seen any articles on it? Have you heard anyone talk about that, you know, the, the department of whomever came in and uh, told somebody they had to have a license? Um, well, I'll go first on that. Uh, yeah, that is a massive subject for Hurricane Michael. There were just so many contractors that were um, uh, charged and thrown in jail for um, doing work in Florida without the appropriate licenses. Hmm. And uh, surprisingly, a week ago, I just heard that a really good restoration contractor, I just, um, somebody sent me a clip 
showing that he was arrested and charged with um, several counts of uh, uh, doing work in, on Hurricane Michael uh, on structures without the appropriate licensing. And, uh, and I haven't talked to him in a week, so I gather he's in jail still. Still trying to figure that out. Is yeah, that con- a lot of people that got in trouble with that. Now, hey, you- hey, uh, hey, Joe, before, before John jumps in on that, let me dovetail off of what Ken said. He's talking about the state contracting law, which oversees, you know, the mold assessment licensing and the mold remediation licensing, which is really big. I mean, I I lived in the West Coast in California for over 20 years, and they, they're very proactive in that. There were contractors that have been cited and have been locked up out there, too. California in particular, and a lot of these Western states, they run these amnesty programs every three years to get people to be in compliance. But let me tell you about Florida. A lot of the people that I have talked to who do business in Florida, many of our REA members, a lot of these guys who do national business, okay, they have to get licensed in all these specific states. Florida in particular has not only state licensing, there could be county licensing, local localities. So when people come here who don't, particularly if you don't live in the state, you got to be sensitive to that. Uh, A lot of times it's better to partner with a guy who's already based here, work under their license, that kind of thing. And I I think somebody like John LaFatura is a long-term resident here. Um, John, maybe, maybe you could dovetail and weigh in on that. Throw it back to you, Joe. Go ahead, John. Yeah, it, as far as licensing is concerned, the, the state itself is doing a really good job after natural disasters um, in checking licensing. Uh, for whatever reason, our website gets a lot of hits because we post a, a, a lot on our website about the state licensing law. So we get a tremendous amount of calls after a natural disaster from contractors wanting help to figure out how to get licensed after they were caught without a license. Mm-hmm. So they do a pretty good job of it. But it doesn't mean that there aren't repeated offenders. I will also add that it's it's not necessary to have a license in the state of Florida if you're working under the supervision of someone that has a license. So as long as you say, I'm working with Mike, and Mike has a license, and they contact Mike, and Mike says, yes, I'm supervising them, you're okay. And you'll see a, a lot of franchises from all over the country swarm the state of Florida during a, a natural disaster and the franchisees are working under each other's licensing and that's completely acceptable in the law. Yeah, so Joe, that's what I was commenting on because that means that the guy who's putting his license at risk is ultimately responsible. So he's going to be a local and he's got roots to the community and if he's willing to allow a guy to work under that license, you got to figure he trusts them. So that's okay. The main point of all this don't do business in the state, in any of these states that would contract licensing, unless you have a license or unless you're working under someone's license. Otherwise, you're really at risk, and particularly after the hurricanes, and particularly in areas where there are aging populations, California, Arizona, Florida in particular, the state attorney general's office are very active of, you know, of these scams and taking advantage, not just the general population, but, but particularly the aging population, because they're susceptible to that. Great point, Pete. All right, let me. What I'd like to do is turn it over and uh, bring you Ed Light into the conversation here. Most of you know Ed out of the D.C. area, and Ed, um, I kind of want to switch gears, change topics a little bit, talk about another hot topic out there, and I, I don't mean to. Uh, well, it's fires, okay, and, and fire 
uh, wildfires and also just, you know, fire restoration has been a hot topic, especially with all the wildfires here in, in uh, the West, uh, West and also in Australia right now. And Ed, I'm wondering um, if you could comment a little bit on what you're seeing with respect to testing and um, whether or not there's there's been any good protocols put out by AIHA or others for uh, doing some evaluation, you know, uh, after a fire to determine what areas have been uh, affected and what areas haven't. So uh, the big question here is how do you assess smoke damage and how do you verify it's cleaned up? So, you know, this is wildfires and any kind of fires. And so what we're hearing from my friends at the American Industrial Hygiene Association, the uh, uh, labs and the uh, scientific consultants, is their fascination with sampling and using that data uh, just as they've done for years with mold. And the basic question is, does this data answer the questions you're looking at? And my position is it does not tell you the health risks, the contamination, the restoration needs, and it doesn't tell you whether the place is restored. So AIHA uh, originally had me on a on their group to write up a guide and protocol and so on. And, and I've kind of phased out of that because I believe that the folks writing it generally aren't familiar with restoration building science. Uh, and with the nitty-gritty of dealing with smoke. And so I'm uh, very proud to be working now with the uh, IICRC group, uh, writing uh, a actual national approach protocol for, uh, for fire restoration. And I really appreciate Cliff... Uh, brought me in, volunteered me for that. And uh, so we're busily working away with a team from around the world of restorers. And I'm kind of the scientific advisor on the group. And I don't have an opinion unless I go in and get dirty myself and participate in some of these jobs. And what we're coming up with uh, on the assessment and verification is practical procedure uh, to really determine what you need. You know, what's the damage? What's the overall exposure? What you got to do to restore it? And how do you verify it? So look forward to uh, uh, when we get done debating and crafting the language to that coming out. Ed, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, we're getting close to halftime, but I think you could answer this one pretty quickly. What Are you saying there's no role for sampling or just we don't have a enough data enough scientific backing to actually determine whether there's a role for sampling on these fire uh, projects well there uh in some cases that information might be helpful to answer minor questions 
but they're not going to give you the big picture answer to what's the scope of the contamination, what are you going to do about it, and has it worked? Uh, so, for example, if there's a very specific medical situation and the need to find out exactly what chemical person being exposed to, uh, some sampling would give you some information. Uh, but uh, in working with good, experienced restorers, their, uh, their understanding of the type of contamination and where it is to develop a way to, to deal with it uh, is really the, uh, the uh, knowledgeable and conclusive approach. So, yeah, samples are, are interesting. Uh, they will tell you a very limited idea of what's in this square inch. Now, when you get to the tests and the type of tests, there really is no good research saying what are the key contaminants, what are the parameters, and no criteria at all that are accepted or valid in terms of drawing any conclusions from this data. And, of course, labs are always glad to say, oh, look, these magic numbers run our tests, and you can write a report. So it's kind of where we're at with fires, and it uh, certainly needs more testing in regard to research to understand exactly what we're dealing with, what we're exposed to, and maybe eventually there could be some tests. But as of right now, uh, when I go in, I, I don't do testing. Well, you know what? Use my nose and my fingers quite a bit. After we, what I'd like to do, Ed, is, is break for halftime, thank our sponsors, and when we come back, I'd like you to go ahead and, and talk a little bit about how you would perform an investigation both before and after a fire, and then I want to bring Pete in. I know um, RIA has been working on some programs, and uh, he may have a little, little more background on where they're headed with this issue. And I think maybe they're working with IICRC on it. I don't know, but we're going to stop and thank our sponsors. We'll be back in ninety seconds with the second half of our open mic show. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus Engineers and Manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more 
at iaqa.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at siriscience.org. That's C-I-R-I science.org. Okay, we're back for the second half. We've got uh, Ed Light. We've got John Lapoterre. We've got Pete Consigli. We've got Ken Larson. And uh, at some point here, I want to get... Actually, I think after we have Ed go through his protocol a little more, we'll get Don Weeks in to weigh in a little bit as well. Ed, before the half, we were talking about how you investigate a fire and then develop a, a scope of work, I guess, and then clear a fire. Essentially, it's a white glove type of thing. Well, first, first of all, uh, if I'm involved, uh, we don't go in and say we're the expert, do the assessment, and tell people what to do. It's got to be teamwork between the parties involved, and uh, hopefully if we have a good, knowledgeable contractor, I want them to take the lead and propose what they think is going on, what they should do, and the proper role of a informed industrial hygienist should be to work with them and uh, perhaps fine-tune it. The approach to assessment with smoke that I believe in is just a systematic approach of the tried-and-true methods. Uh, and I worked and talked considerably with the uh, late Marty King on, on our approaches to this and uh, you know, visual and uh, uh, make sure it's systematic and comprehensive. And uh, we have a uh, an odor protocol and it's, it's not chemistry that you need to measure, but a systematic worst case space by space evaluation uh, of, of odor. Uh, and uh, from that, you uh, determine a scope of work and let the contractor pick appropriate methods to achieve that. And the proper role, I believe, of the industrial hygienist in mold and smoke is to help the contractor get that done, verify it. And, uh, and I'll be working with the group at uh, IICRC to try to get a general outline and approach smoke damage assessment cleanup and verification alright I, I think a lot of our restoration people would be very happy to hear that <laughs> you, you uh, laid out a really nice way of working together let's let's get Don Weeks in on the phone here Don uh, we gotta unmute you Don are you still with us uh, yes I'm still here Hi, Don I'm not, I don't know that you're You've done a whole lot with fire, but I could be wrong. Um, do you have any comments, any follow-up on that? Um, main, I, I, listen, mostly I think that the Ed's approach is, 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 is very much uh, uh, the way I, I would follow as well. Uh, I want to differentiate, though, between, say, a home fire, you know, where you have a, a one-location fire and wildfires, which uh, obviously are much in the news right now in Australia, but... Previous to that, we're very much in the news here in Canada uh, with um, 
with the wildfires we had about 18 months ago. Right. Uh, th- those types of fires where you, where you have a, a great deal of, of um, total particulates, PM10, uh, PM2.5, those are quite different in terms of the way in which uh, uh, public health officials may want to approach uh, that as opposed to, say, for example, a single uh, home fire where, where obviously there's, there's a, a need to have a, a, a team effort to, to operate on that basis. The reason that I say there's a difference is on the wildfires, obviously the, the, the air quality becomes not something that's a, a minor issue. It becomes a much more major issue for, for populations. Um, and and they're, 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 they're dealing with uh, very high concentrations that can lead to uh, a variety of different types of health effects, including, unfortunately, pa- uh, people who have passed away from the, the high exposures to these types of of particulates and, and other types of chemicals that are associated with fires. So my, my experience has been more along those lines, uh, particularly here in Canada. Uh, we get a, a periodic um, or yearly um, season where we have fires of that nature in Quebec, and the air quality here in Ottawa then becomes extremely difficult to deal with. Uh, and these are massive fires uh, that you know people really don't know how to even address. But it does take into account the, the fact that the that there is a in, it is an air quality problem with regards to these types of fires that needs to be looked at from a public health viewpoint, and that's where industrial hygienists may be uh, you know able to to fit in in terms of that. And what I've done with Health Canada is, is basically serve as a, a scientific advisor in terms of that. Um, and, and I think it, it's important, to, as I said, to look at it from two different viewpoints. I, I agree with Ed uh, on an individual fire that his approach is the way to go on a, a community wide fire such as we have had in, in Australia and, and here in Canada. It, it's a little different story, and a little bit different to perspective as to how to go about dealing with the, uh, the air quality problems that may exist. And Don, when you're, you're dealing with a wildfire, are they looking more at um, like just PM 2.5 and PM 10 and not necessarily what's, what's in that PM 2.5 or 10? Yeah, initially that's the case because it's an easy, it's a relatively easy measure to do. But you're right. Uh, some of the, the uh, advice I've given to, um, uh, to the, the, some of these police departments and on fire departments and others is you have to protect your workers that are there too because, quite frankly, you don't know what, time, what, what might be else burning or what else has become, become part of the smoke. Yeah. So it becomes an issue for those workers as well as for the people who are, you know, have, whose property are being burnt as well. And that, now in, in Australia, they're having problems, for instance, in, in hospitals and other, you know, care facilities where they're wondering, should we perform operations or not while we've got this this situation going? So it's an interesting, very interesting topic. I want to bring uh, Ken Larson in back in on this and maybe Pete um, you guys can talk a little bit about any other efforts I mean RIA for years has been dealing with fire and I think at, at one point they were working with the IICRC on some of these fire standards and IAQA actually um, where are we at with that guys Ken why don't you go first and then I'll do a recap on this topic yeah, I don't have anything to really contribute on that. I'm I'm not up to speed with what the IICRC is doing with the new fire standard. I'll let somebody else in. Okay, Pete. Yeah. All right. So listen, I've been listening here. Um, first of all, you know Ed's approach is a very logical approach, and uh, if the Z-man heard him talk, he he he'd get all excited because he's always kind of like uh, 
Ed's approach that dates back to the 90s when we first met the, with him. He was working locally in the D.C. area with Davich and, you know, other long-term in, industry insiders. But in particular, a lot of people don't realize Ed started working with the IICRC, and he was involved in the late 90s on the second S-500 water damage, and he brought a very logical kind of approach to the process because that was kind of the mold as gold days first started. And I think you could see now, two decades later, he still hasn't changed his viewpoint. He still has that same approach as applied to smoke. Now, what Ed was talking about, and to kind of bring this in context for the, for the uh, audience, is the um, uh, uh, the if you recall back when we did the strategic alliance show last uh, fall yep. when the IACRC and REA did their strategic alliance, we did a series of shows on IQ Radio. Um, the standards activity of that of all the REA standards is now in the IICRC lane, and that was part of the agreement. So REA is working with IICRC on that process. And that's that's kind of what uh, Ed's talking about. And that, that the roots of that were the original 10 years of work that RIA did. Now, RIA, now IICRC is basically essentially going to bring it to market. Now, two big points that are contentious, and they were contentious even at the tail end of the RIA process um, before it went over to IICRC. And it, it is, what is going to be in the standard the involvement of these outside consultants in the IEPs. That was a big issue with the water standard from the late 90s to when it became an ANSI document and as it evolved, we used to call them third-party consultants with water. Now they're IEPs. That was part of the whole, the mold era in the early 2000s. Um, so what Ed was talking about that uh, in Marty, Marty King's philosophy uh, exists with a lot of people on the committee today that you got to defer first to the common sense approach. Your or uh, you know what you visually can see, what you can smell, whether it's white glove. You do these inspections before you just want to jump to the sampling and start running up these bills and think that you know people are playing with monopoly money. And so, um, but the but the roots for some of the some of the criteria for whatever testing might be done does date back to the standard that REA did with the IESO, and that was all under the IEQA banner, on dealing with the interior of the ducts. There was NACA support for that too, and they wanted to determine, uh, the, the primary purpose of that was to determine uh, how you differentiate just normal soiling from soot, and that the char was the indicator, and that was used to determine to, to set scope in other words, is 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 this uh, smoke related or is it just normal soiling, which would be maintenance and wouldn't be covered under insurance? And then, if they do remedial work, any kind of restoration, you would use that same protocol to determine: well, have they removed it? Has that char marker been removed versus, uh, you know, it, it wasn't? And uh, so there are consultants of people that were working judiciously in that context, and I would hope that it continues in that way. What I I don't think that we want to see happen. At least I don't. I can speak for myself, but there are others who would support that. We don't want to see the consultants hijack the uh, the fire restoration industry, uh, kind of like it's happened in mold, to be quite honest with you. And, um, you know, the other thing that I will also bring up uh, that kind of ties up some of the stuff that we took got into pretty heavily on the first part of the show, Joe, 
if a lot of the viewers can't see, but you know, the chat line that's going, there's a lot of discussion on licensing. And quite frankly, licensing is not necessarily the answer and it's fraught with all, all kinds of issues. So it is a double-edged sword. I mean, most of the time, if industry can self-regulate, it's much better. And usually the government will allow that to happen. But when it gets out of control, like it has in Florida, that's the reason why the government comes in. And then when then we have to deal with the results of licensing. Uh, I'm particularly in the mold area and the special areas. I mean, general construction licensing, that's existed for years. That's not going to go away. But uh, but some of this other licensing. So anyway, uh that's that's probably all I got to say on that. I mean, if uh, Ken or John, Ed, anybody wants to weigh in on that, certainly feel free. If there are any other questions, Joe, that you think need to be clarified, go ahead and weigh in before you move to another topic. Let me let me jump to John Lapotier. I want to see if you had anything to add. I don't know how much you deal with fire restoration, but I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are. I lost you for a minute there. Can you guys hear me? Yes, sir. You're back. There we go. Uh, yeah, I don't. I try real hard to stay away from fire, uh, <laughs> unless it's a wildfire, and we have clients that want to know if they have uh, uh, particulate issues to deal with after a fire. But uh, yeah, I try real hard to stay away from from house fires. It's just far too dirty for me. Understood. Understood, buddy. Uh, all right, Ken. Was there anything you wanted to add before I go to another topic? Um. Yeah, on that subject, I, I will tell you that uh, there is a. Um, uh, I'm getting asked more and more to assist in uh, establishing scopes uh, for fire repair and smoke damage and determining how far the, the smoke went and what the full scope of work is. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of questions about how you you know conduct these samples and how you interpret them and what thresholds you should be using, and uh, you know the, the new chemical compounds that are you know potentially produced. Uh, I had one client that uh, had me specifically go into her house and test for VOCs and determine if the uh, VOCs produced there could be causing the health issues that she's got. And that is just full of landmines when you get into a discussion like that. So uh, it can get real tricky. Uh, But, you know, I think it's a need for the future is that there needs to be some easier way to determine the scope of work on a fire and smoke loss. And uh, just before we jump off this subject, I just wanted to quickly say that I really hope that contractors realize or will be reminded that sealants and encapsulants, that white pigmented product that you put on, that so many contractors are putting on the timber, that is a last resort. That is not a solution. It is something that you do when everything else fails. It's, um, it, and so many people are looking for this silver bullet product that you can just paint onto the building and the, the building's problems go away. It, um, I think there needs to be a, a strong reminder to contractors that that is uh, not a competent method to restore fire and smoke damaged structures to simply paint them in pigmented shellac. That's not a responsible protocol. Okay. Thank you, Kate. Hey, jo- hey, Joe. Pete. Joe. Let Go me ahead. weigh in on that now. If the Z-Man was here, he'd jump off the screen. <laughs> he loves his, I, I think, loves I think his we shellac. To, uh, well, I want to qualify what Ken said. Please do. It isn't as much as a last resort. I think the key point is there's too many contractors who don't do any cleaning to physically remove the source first, right? This is the basics of all odor removal, right. any kind of remedial work. 
And what happens is they want to go just start to spray a bunch of sealers and then they want to paint. That doesn't work. That, that's the scourge. What happens is the primary point, and not all sealers are alike, and as you well know through your Healthy Building Summit, Cliff has done research on this, okay? And he's advocated for this for years through all of his unsmoked training long before there was legends. I won't get into all the brand naming on the sealers, but some work better than others. But the key point is, is that the primary purpose of a sealer is normally not as much for odor control as it is for bleed through, okay? When you do thorough cleaning of a surface, let's say a enamel painted wall in a kitchen where there was significant heat, you could clean the heck out of that wall and, and the wall is going to look dirty. And people and the homeowner, if they happen to be watching, think you didn't do a good job. No, the heat softened the paint. And what happened is the smoke got in there. So you clean the surface residue. At the purpose you seal that is so that you won't get bleed through in your paint. It really doesn't have anything to do with the odor removal because the odor removal is based on cleaning and everything else you do on the project. So I think it's important to kind of to clarify that, that there's a use and application for sealers, not necessarily as a last resort, but as a part of the process uh, for to lock stain in. And this is something that painters for years have used on water losses, like on baseboards. They call it back priming. Mm -hmm. So what happens is they'll put some kind of a shellac or something on the back for staining so that when they paint the the, 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 the the whatever particulates are in the water, they don't bleed through. And then two months later, you'll see a little staining above the baseboard line on the paint. So anyway. Thank you, Pete. Uh, thank you, hey, uh, before we go to the roundup, I want to uh, either Pete or Ken, whomever wants to do this, I want to get a quick update on the AGA um, that that's something that got a lot of traction early on. I haven't seen as much here recently, but I'm sure there's a lot going on I'm not aware of. Who wants to handle that? Yeah, I'll chime in on the AGA. Um, so, yeah, this is a really exciting industry development that the Advocacy and Governmental Affairs Committee has been created by the RIA, and it's um, chaired by Ed Cross. And uh, we've got uh, several committees in that group that are focusing on uh, the many different demographics in our industry that present uh, challenges to the restoration contractor and uh, in the settlement of the claims process. Um, so, I mean, contractors, we, we, for the most part, we have very similar challenges day to day. And so uh, that might be coming from third party administrators, maybe third party consultants that show up on the job. Um, preferred vendor programs with the insurance companies um, and, uh, you know, misuse or intentional misuse of the software programs present in our industry. These are all uh, challenges that contractors face every day. So the AGA has put together several committees um, with each with their own particular focus on assisting in resolving these challenges. So there is some um, uh, a lot of enthusiasm with this group. The thing that I am most excited about is the industry uh, support. The restorers are um, jumping on this investment opportunity because really when you think about it, it's not a donation that they would give to the AGA. They're investing in their industry's future with these donations. And so there's a lot of people that are being very generous and contributing towards it. Uh, the, the AGA needs to have the industry support and it's uh, uh, it's using that money extremely wisely and frugally, and they are uh, 
revealing their positive successes. And so you'll, I encourage everybody to watch for Ed Cross's emails and uh, his video posts uh, where he's describing uh, what they've accomplished. And it's exciting. This is this industry is finally starting to evolve into something that um, uh, is, is at least a, is going to be hopefully one day more fair than it is today. And it's uh, it's progressing. I'm pretty excited right. about it. Thank you, Ken. I think what we're going to do is go to the roundup here, John. Yeah, all right. Before we go around the horn here, I want to mention real quick IAQA's 2020 Annual Meeting and Expo, February 19th through the 21st, West Palm Beach. Go to the IAQA website for more information. AEML, one of our sponsors, uh, Winter Break 2020, the Winter Break South Florida Technical Conference on Mold, sponsored by AEML. That's going to be February 21 and 22, so while you're in the area, you could probably catch both shows. We'll put a link up to that website as well. And RIA's 2020 International Restoration Convention and Industry Expo will be April 13 through 17 in New Orleans, Louisiana. We'll have that link up as well. Let's go around the horn and just get some final thoughts before we have a, a, a really interesting outro today. Uh, Ed, Ed has a new song. Let me see if I have the... The title right here, uh, Sandstone. I mean, I got it. I got it, Ed. Sandstone Haze. So stick around for the end of the show. You're going to get, uh, I think, the first live performance of Sandstone Haze. All right, let's go around the horn, John Lapoter. Uh, John, any final thoughts? Whatever you, whatever's on your mind, you can either follow up on things we talked about or mention something that's upcoming. Yeah, I, I wanted to remind everybody that the IICRC is right at their mold assessment standard, the S530. Um, I believe they met last week, uh, the board, to try and put together um, a chair for the committee. So keep yourself uh, uh, open to what's going to be another mold assessment standard. We hope that it uh, is a complement to the current ASTM standard and isn't a standalone walk away. Uh, but we we hope that many of the different industry organizations work together to make it a, a good standard. Thank you, John. Uh, let's go to Ed. Ed Light, final thoughts before we go to your solo? No, I'm uh, saving time for my song. All right, you got it, buddy. <laughs> let's go over. You know what? Can you bring Don Weeks back in? I want to I want to get Don to get a final comment in here too. Don, we'll bring you on here in just a second. I want to get a final. Don, I know one thing that I want to comment on is the the new Green Book is coming out, and we have Jay David Miller on two weeks from today. Uh, he'll he's the one of the editors of the new Green Book. I'm just wondering what. What should we be looking for uh, with respect to you know significant changes in that in that document? I understand about eighty percent of the document has been changed. Any key points you'd like to point out? Uh, yeah, I think that the main thing is that uh, the focus is on uh, what has happened since the initial uh, green book came out in two thousand eight. It has been twelve years, uh, and they, their their focus is really on uh, what are the latest processes. For uh, for doing um, analysis of, of or, or investigations for, for mold infestations, 
and really talking about what is the, uh, the issues with regards to uh, any type of sampling that's done. Uh, they're, they're, they're using that uh, as the basis for, for discussion of, of how to approach any type of mold problem out there that you might have in your building. So uh, that's, a, that's a really different type of approach than what was done in the 2008 uh, first publication, for which I was a co-editor on. Uh, this one, uh, they kicked me out as a co-editor and brought in uh, uh, Steve Caulfield, uh, actually, he, he's, he's done an excellent job in bringing the industrial hygienist uh, perspective to it. So, and I just want to mention one other thing. Uh, on the ACGIH uh, meeting or uh, um, call next week uh, for IQ Radio, yes. uh, you got the chance to meet with Frank Mortal, uh, who is the new executive director of, of ACGIH. I'm on the board of directors to ACGIH, so I need to at least let Frank know that, uh, that he's going to be getting as big a crowd as you have today uh, uh, next week as well. So thank you. Sounds good. Thank you, Don. Always great to have you join us. Let's go to Ken Larson. Yeah, um, the only thing I wanted to say is I hope to see everybody at the RIA convention in New Orleans coming up in April. Uh, That'll be good. Uh, Be sure to support your AGA. Um, They're making big changes for your industry. They're requesting investments of one-tenth of one percent of your annual growth. If you do the math on that, that's a very minimal amount. But if we can get that kind of commitment from the industry's uh, participants, uh, that should be plenty to keep the AGA um, making big changes for our industry. And finally, the other thing I wanted to mention was uh, just a reminder to uh, use your indoor environmental professionals uh, on your insurance claims. It, it is, uh, seems to be the trend for uh, reputable contractors in order to assist in diminishing the disputes at the end of the claim. Thank you, Ken. Always a pleasure having you join us. Pete, final thoughts before we go to our, our Ed Light solo. Oh, has Ed weighed in yet? Or we yeah. have him? Uh, he's, he's holding off to put, give him more time for the song. Oh, okay. So listen, um, the only one of the things I, I like to say is that, and I'm going to, all the, um, uh, the IEQA, uh, the AML event, REA, all those sponsors, I, I'm going to uh, put those links uh, in the blog, along with that link on the uh, uh, Canada Help that Don Weeks provided me, he, he put the put that link up in the in the uh, IM chat. So some of you saw that. I'm going to put that link in the blog so everybody can kind of have access to Canada's position on the fire. I already checked it out; pretty good. But the other thing too is Joe is uh, as and many of the listeners may know RAA. Uh, has for two years now has been holding an annual convention in June right after our Memorial Day in Australia and uh, this June it'll be the third year and uh, the, the IICRC supports it they've been supporting it for years even before the strategic align, alignment agreement that we had with RA last fall and um, they got the, the big footprint there and uh, a lot of the suppliers we know plus a lot of the local suppliers they always get a certain amount of the North Americans that go over to help participate in the programs. And then part of the goal is, is a lot of the different um, uh, uh, guys in North America can go over and attend that package vacation on and uh, write the trip off. It's kind of the strategy. So I'm going to put the link. They have their own landing page on the RA website just for the Australian event. Uh, everything on the uh, uh, U.S. stuff is on there. If you visited this site recently... And didn't see too much details. It all was uploaded yesterday. So go back to the site. All, all the details are there. The one other heads up I'll give 
And this is kind of a shout out for John Downey and your indoor air quality people on here. Those of you that read the technical journal that he has, the last word that he had in the last journal, he talked about, he went over to Hawaii and I'm not sure where the Richard Shaughnessy went, but ISIAC and the Siri in 2021 are co-holding, are, are gonna co-locate their, the, their annual conference in Hawaii. It happened to be the same week that the Aussies normally hold their conference. So I sent a message to those guys and I told them to try to book theirs the week before or the week after. And maybe the industry can do some global, you know, uh, collaboration where people from the U.S. and Canada can travel to Hawaii and then go to Australia and also vice versa to help support all these events. I know there's a lot of the IQA guys, you know, and indoor air quality guys who are on the show right now. Um, are involved in ISIAC and, uh, you know, those, those uh, uh, scientific aspects of, of that part of the industry. So anyway, uh, uh, everybody should support Siri, I believe. I think it, they're the, the new journal and the, uh, the scientific conference putting on and they're collaborating with all the other industry groups. And uh, I, John's done a great job with the journal. Obviously, he's done a few shows on here. So uh, Whatever that's worth. I, I appreciate will, uh, it. Turn it back to you, sir. Thank you, Pete. I'm glad you brought that up. I forgot all about uh, that event. And I also want to, I'm glad you mentioned John and Siri. They're also one of our sponsors. I probably should have brought him on. But before we go, we've got, I, I don't know, Ed, it might be the first performance uh, live of Sandstone Haze. Take it away. Okay, so. Uh, silicosis and silica control have become a real big deal in the in the workplace, and uh, this is a song about where the understanding of this really first happened, which was 80 years ago in the digging of the uh, Oxnest Tunnel, and in West Virginia. This is a, a song that was written by a late friend of mine, Mark Plummer. And uh, so he was dying of cancer and wrote this beautiful song, couldn't really get the, uh, the actual music to us. So we've played around with the uh, actual melody and chords here. And so Sandstone Haze, it's from the, uh, it's the story of one of the uh, unfortunate workers who died in digging that tunnel out. Digging in this tunnel for the millionth day, old rock dust just stares at me through a sandstone haze. Getting hard to work, my shift can't seem to catch my breath. You know I ain't the only one staring at the face of death. Back at camp, can't get no rest. I know it's time to go. Can't stop the pain inside my chest. Feel it rise and fall, Lord. Feel it rise and fall. Please, Lord, leave us away from here. I'll be with you real soon. Folks back home don't know my plight. 
on the dark side of the moon. Whatever it is killing me, don't want to die alone. Staring at the wall in my final home. See that red hawk flying, flying to his nest. Soon I will be flying to. Here's my last request. Don't me go to heaven with a shovel in my hand. Don't let me go to heaven with a shovel in my hand. Rise on up before the dawn, back to the dust again. When I walk that promised land, I'll be on demand. Lay me out at Hawk's Nest for all good folks to gaze. Digging my old grave in a sandstone haze. <laughs> Thank you, Ed. I can't think of a better way to end this show. I uh, really appreciate having you on. I want to thank all of you for joining us today at the controls. John, you got to have faith. The Z-Man will be back next week, next Friday. It's ACGIH week. We'll see you all back here next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.